This morning, continuing in Amos chapter 5, looking at verses 18 through 27, the day of the Lord, let justice roll down, part one. By the grace of God, we sing holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. Well, Jeroboam the first didn't adore him or recognize the nature of his holiness, and he led the people not simply into demonic paganism, but instead because he feared that the worship of the one true God just wasn't a practical circumstance for the condition of the new nation that he was running. He feared that the worship of the one true God would lead the heart of the people of Israel back to the house of David. And so Jeroboam fashioned, he had him a God custom fitted in the manner that he needed him to be. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they fell into the vilest depravity and the worship of every kind of demon that they could get their hands on. The madness of believing their own hearts above the very truth that was set before them. Something that we look at these texts and scorn them for doing and yet are in much danger of doing ourselves. So, generations later, when the root had come to fruition during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, just two years before the earthquake, Amos, a humble shepherd from Katoa, saw a word. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers, for when the Lord roars, his people come trembling, but the wicked harden their hearts. And in the midst of that hardening, a very partial God shows no partiality, roaring at Syria and Philistia and Tyre and Edom and Anam and Moab and even at Judah herself, but particularly at Israel. For they are a particular people set apart to him. And with much blessing comes much responsibility. There is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that has ever come out of hatred. As the Lord said in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Thus says the Lord, Hear this word, you cows. Not simply an insult, but speaking to a spiritual reality. Because out of all of the people, He knew them. And because He knew them, because He was intimate with them, they will meet Him. Yahweh, the very God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war, He looks at His people and says, prepare to meet your God, not because I don't know you, but specifically because I do. In the holy heart of an eternal God, speaks lamentation over the house of Israel, a dirge for the dead, a complex song that springs forth both out of a heart of anger 
in a heart of the deepest sadness. God is angry with His people, and rightly so. For the virgin Israel is breaking His heart. And the judgment that comes out of that anger that is fueled by sadness is a judgment that we saw last week that is erect and upright. Literally, the Hebrew is rightly well. Amos 5.16, take the Greek Western concept of therefore and kind of throw it out the window and say it with me. Rightly well, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. Not just because you did this, there will be, but because you did this, there will be and there should be rightly well, says the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing. And yet, and yet, in the midst of judgment, in that thing which is rightly well for God to do, there is also that which is rightly well for the guilty to do. Even with a mortality rate of 90%, which is what's coming, there is hope. Amos 5, 14 through 15, Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you, you, know, you can either have the God of war for you or against you. Which is it going to be? That the God of hosts the God of armies, the God of war, that He may be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It may be, it may be that even now He will do this thing. Offenses of the heart require reconciliation of the heart. When the heart of God is offended, legalism will not suffice. If you want a guarantee, everybody today wants a guarantee. If you want a guarantee, if you want a prenuptial agreement to legally secure a potential investment that you may, may make in God, you're out of luck. You will get no such thing from Him. Say, well, Pastor Brian, there's lots of places in Scripture. You read some of them last week that say God guarantees that if you do this, He will do this. Yes, He does. He is guaranteeing that out of the quality of His character. That does not mean that sinners are in a position to come to a holy God and say, because your word says X, that if I do Y, you have to do Z. Now save me because I checked the boxes. Friend, you are going to meet your God. And it will not be pretty. That's not the heart of reconciliation. You want guarantees about what God will do that confirm the character of God? Buddy, it's full of them. You want guarantees about what God will do because you think that you can use them to leverage your position? You're crazy. This is about the heart. This is about the sinner, the guilty that comes forth and lays themselves in his hands 
and says, I know it's right for you to do what you're about to do to me, but I've heard that you're good and that you're merciful in the face of justice. And I'm going to trust, blind trust, that you might perhaps do this for me. And it may be, it may be, that God will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, if that's what it's about, and I would present to you that it is, Then if you're going to place your trust somewhere, you better know who you're trusting. And not just think that you know them. Not just think that you know them. You better actually know them. Scripture describes the relationship that exists between God and His people Typically in one of two ways. He gives us a testimony of those in ourselves so that we'll have some understanding of them. He speaks of them as being his children and he being the father. He speaks of them as them being his bride and him being the bridegroom. And so I don't have any kids, so I won't speak to that. But I do have a bride, so I will speak to it. Friends, the reason that so many marriages end in disaster is because they think they know the person that they are trusting when they don't. If you're going to trust someone, and man, this relationship is one of trust, not of legality. If you're going to trust someone, in this case with your eternal soul, you better actually know the one you're trusting. So here it is today. We're just going to get started. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 27. Woe to you. Good way to get started with any minor prophet. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate. Now I just, let's just all just kind of marinate in that for a moment. Because so often the pulpits today don't teach the nature of God's hatred the way that Scripture teaches the nature of God's hatred. We edit it out. Which is exactly how Jeroboam ended up where he was at. I hate. And let me assure you that when a holy God hates, he hates with a holy hatred. I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs.
to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king, and Kiyun your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of war. Okie dokie. The day of the Lord. Not really what you would expect concerning that these are supposed to be the people of the Lord. And so when you have the people of the Lord, and I mean, Israel is by definition the people of the Lord. I mean, he said, man, I... You know, I chose you not because you were greater in number than anyone else. You know, I, I called you to myself, not, not because you were better, not because you were stronger, not because you were bigger. I did so because God says he did so because he chose them and because that choice had came out of a heart of intimacy in which he had loved their fathers and therefore loved them based off the promise he made out of love to their fathers. So they are a very particular people. They're his people. They're his bride. They're his virgin Israel. They're his children. And so you would think that if the Lord has a day that's his day, that man, that ought to be a pretty sweet day for his bride and his kids. And yet, here comes the word from the prophet, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? I mean, literally, the Lord is speaking to Amos, and he's like, tell these people, first of all, you're crazy for wanting it to come, and second of all, why would you even be foolish enough to think that you should want it? I mean, you got to put yourself in these people's position. They're thinking, I mean, because look, this has been ingrained in them for generations at this point. Man, we're the Lord's people. We worship his images. We go up to Dan. We, we bow down before those golden calves that are the Elohim that brought us out of Egypt. And so this very one that brought us out of Egypt, man, we go up there all the time. We do all the stuff. We're his people. Shouldn't the day of the Lord be awesome for us? Yet, the prophet says that it will be nothing for them but woe and darkness. And he is not a single voice crying in this respect. As a matter of fact, if you'll flip back to the left just a couple of pages in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel says something very similar. He expounds on it a little bit more. In Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, he says, Put on sackcloth and lament. Not just anybody, but specifically to the priests. Now, if you have a people of God, and out of that people are a specific category of people that are the priests of God, then you would think when the day of that God comes along, once again, there should be joy. And yet he says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. 
because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day. What are we crying out? Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. He says, get all your priests together, get all your ministers to the altar together, get ready to cry out to the Lord, and what are you going to cry out? Oh no, your day is here. You want a further description? Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion. This isn't a general statement, you know. Statement about the, the very heart of the people of God, geographically. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. I'm not going to exegete it this morning, but I'll just tell you this. The reason there's never been any like them before or ever again is because this is the full expression of the mystery of lawlessness. This is the image bearers. This is the fallen. This is man and demon all in the same alliance. Here's how it's described. Fire devours before them. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yay. Who can endure it? Good grief, man. These are the very people of God. And yet, and they're priests. 
and those that attend their altar. And yet he says to them, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Well, when Joel gives us the blow-by-blow commentary, it's pretty clear why you wouldn't want to have it. Why is it this way? Because typically we think about For the people of the Lord, having the day of the Lord is a thing of great hope. And so why is it being, well, it's not even being presented this way. It's just being dictated this way. Woe to you. What are you thinking? That you should want this. And the answer is, The reason it is a day of woe for them, the reason the day of the Lord is a day of woe for them, the reason it's a day of darkness and not of light in the final analysis, because it's going to be a darkness, it's going to be a day of darkness for everyone, and it's going to be a day of light for everyone. But in the final analysis, the reason that it equates to a day of darkness and not a day of light for them is because the Lord who is having his day isn't the God that they think he is. It isn't the same God that they have been following. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them, the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But instead what? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If this is the God who causes justice to roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, and he hates the things that they have been doing in their offerings, in their sacrifices, and in their songs, then the only conclusion that we can come to is that they were mistaken in who they thought the God of righteousness and justice was. I would note to you today the danger of a custom-fit deity. Custom-fit boots are great. I had custom-fit suits in the notes, but I didn't think it seemed very believable. Custom-fit boots, awesome. Custom-fit deity, Man, we don't sanctify God to us. He sanctifies us to himself. The result of trying to have a custom-fit God for the nation of Israel is to prepare to meet your God, the God of war. And unfortunately for them... They are so deluded in the madness of believing their own deceitful heart over the truth that is set before them that they actually think they want to meet him. 
They look forward to the day of the Lord. Not knowing that it will be the day when their rebellion, when their madness, when their self-deception is exposed on the day that the actual righteous God destroys them for labeling something else as Him. Now, when we look at the day of the Lord, we typically see this as a pretty positive thing. And as, as long as I can put the asterisks by that, and, and don't get me wrong, the asterisk is a scriptural asterisk, okay? As long as I can put an asterisk beside that, I say amen. Amen. I mean, good grief. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 through 31, our Lord says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, good grief, who in the world doesn't want that? I want that. Man, I want that. Like, man, sometimes when I see the evil that is around us, man, I'm rooting for that. I'm like, yeah, come on. Come on, man. <laughs> Let justice roll down. Do it. Man, you're the God of love. You're the God of grace. You're the God of mercy. And you're the God of war. Let's see it. Come on. But a, a front row view of that same day is a little more uh, gritty. Kind of the expanded, up close and personal, you know, right behind the dugout, get a little tobacco juice, spit on you kind of view of that same day that Christ speaks of in Matthew 24 is spoken of in Revelation chapter 19 in verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many, on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped literally splattered in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God the armies of heaven because he is the Lord of hosts the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that all sounds very glorious, because it is. But, you have to understand, the glory is on his terms. This is the day of the Lord as He is, not the day of the Lord as we would custom fit Him. And so, on this same day that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, when, he, when, man, when an angel blows the trumpet call and He gathers His elect on this day, 
Here's also what's going on. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You ever see those photos, those videos, when they talk about the trash barges that are coming out of these big coastal cities where they don't know what to do with all the garbage. They've got these big barges that are just full of trash, just, you know, it's like a floating landfill, and they just sail around sometimes for years because they can't find anywhere that'll let them harbor because nobody wants their trash, right? And dude, the seabirds are just like on them. That's the picture you see here. Because of the way that modern warfare is fought, you don't see this kind of thing much anymore, though there is some records that come out of World War I that would speak of these sorts of things. But if you look back to antiquity, people would marvel that there were even that many birds on earth, much less that many in the vicinity that were able to descend. They always start with the soft bits. Come gather for the great supper of the uh, the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of men all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You know, man, when you read that, you know, you read the you read what Jesus says in Matthew about the day of the Lord and our being gathered together to him. And man, that sounds awesome. And then you read what Jesus shows John in Revelation chapter 19 about the day of the Lord. And you go, man, that's awesome. You know, that's rougher than I expected. Well, friends, once again, I would remind you, if we're going to be saved, there must be something to be saved from. Thus, for the student of Scripture... The day of the Lord, and you got to hear me here, because this—if we're going to move on next, if we're going to continue next week, we're not moving on. If we're going to continue next week. You've got to get this. Thus, the day of the Lord in the heart of the people of God is a day of both joy and trepidation. Not one or the other. I'm telling you, if there is ever a place that you see the complexity of the heart of God and therefore the required complexity of his people who are made and then remade in his image, it's the minor prophets. 
Man, that lamentation comes out of a heart that is both angry and heartbroken. Here we see the day of the Lord is a day of both joy and trepidation. Check it out. Just a couple of proof texts, okay? One out of Revelation chapter 22, chapter 22, and one out of 2 Peter chapter 3. And you will see in them both joy and trepidation. Here it is. The Spirit and the bride say, come. This is good stuff. Hey, man, this is calling his elects, right? Man, this is, this is Jesus Christ himself giving a gospel invitation. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who thirsts come. And let the one who desires to take water of life without price. Friends, that's as joyous as it gets. If that doesn't make you happy, if that doesn't make you happy, you need to consider your salvation. That's as good. I mean, look, man, that's that's the gospel. That's Jesus himself having paid your debt and opening the way for you to come, encouraging you to come. What's the next word out of his mouth? I warn everyone. I warn everyone. Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Guess what? It's mainly plagues. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book, which is the only answer for the plagues. Trepidation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Trust. Joy, trepidation, trust. There is some horrific stuff going down on the day of the Lord. There is joy in the fact that you have promised your people something different in the midst of that trepidation and the reason that I have joy that overcomes trepidation is not 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 eliminates it but overcomes it is because I trust you I trust you second Peter chapter 3 Peter puts it like this but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and when the Heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, trepidation, everything you know, everything you know will burn. Okay? If you've ever watched any of the videos that came out of Joplin, Missouri, or if you're old enough to remember, out of Wichita Falls, Texas, when those two tornadoes ripped both of those cities to the ground, there was something that popped out of those, both of those to me. And and it was two different guys, you know, 35, 40 years apart, however, I don't remember how exactly the dates went. And they were standing there with the bewilderment on their face and, you know, They'd already had the lady in the moo-moo that said it sounded like a freight train. It's you know, prerequisite, right? And the thing that struck me was I remembered both of these guys saying something very similar. They said, I was born and raised here. I've never lived anywhere else. I've lived here all my life. And I couldn't find my house 
Because, and the reason they couldn't was because every landmark, every tree, everything that gave them reference for what their quote-unquote reality was, was gone. And they had a just very bewildered and kind of unsettled look on their face. Okay, well, if that's the case with what a tornado can do, then what happens when the earth, the heavens, the stars, what happens when all of it burns? Friends, this is, that's a awesome, in, in the technical sense of the word, an awesome thing. A thing that in and of itself inspires awe. I mean, there's some real trepidation there, but Peter doesn't stop. He says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Okay, Peter, you're telling me that every single thing I know about the nature of existence is going to burn on the day of the Lord, but the kind of person I ought to be in righteousness and holiness is not only waiting for with anticipation, but also laboring to hasten the coming of that burning. What in the world would cause me to want to do that? And the answer is joy. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Trepidation about the events, joy in what is being promised and trust that God will actually come through and supply. The reason that these people need to be woeful for the coming of the day of the Lord when Scripture instructs that the true people of God should be both fearful and joyful in trust for the day of the Lord is because these people in the madness of their own heart believed that the Lord was something very different than what He actually is. You want to talk about the day of the Lord? You want to talk about dealing with it rightly? You'd better know the Lord whose day it actually is and not have a caricature of who you think that Lord is. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what they've done right there is they've put the label on. They they put the label there, man. They type the thing out, little label makers. When I was a kid, they had the ones with the dial you turned and you punched them, you know, and they wouldn't stick to nothing. Come off that little roll. Yeah, I got you get one for Christmas, you know, usually from a great aunt or something. That's what you want when you're six is a label maker. Right? And the closer you get to the center of the roll, the worse they are about sticking to anything because that tape was so springy and around that center coil, man, it got so tight, you'd flat it down and go... Now, you can print whatever label you want and you can slap it on whatever you want. Doesn't make it real. Now, we got a new fancy one back here. 
We label all sorts of stuff, man. We got a box in that supply closet with a label on it that says gravel. <laughs> now here's the deal. There's actually it works. There's gravel in that drawer. If you open it up, there's gravel in there. It's great. You know, labels work good when they describe what's actually there. But if you think for a moment, you think for a moment, that you can go print yourself off a label that says Lamborghini and go slap it out there on your old Honda and actually have a Lamborghini, you are sorely mistaken. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, why? Because he's indifferent to them? It's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches he's not indifferent at all. As a matter of fact, we took a lot of time last week to look at when he says, buddy, if you, if you, man, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it, it'll be opened, right? You may not find it the first moment you start seeking. It may not open the first time your knuckles wrap on the door. But by golly, if you'll do it, it will happen. He's not indifferent. And yet here are these saying, Lord, Lord, what's the deal? The deal, the problem's not him. The problem's them. And what they want him to be, and guys, he's immutable. He will not move. He will not change. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and hey, look, they... Look, this, this whole counterfeit deal's pretty complex, right? I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't some old boy with a Xerox machine in his garage. They've done some pretty tricky stuff here. On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name?" And then I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." If you look at the history, if you go back, you know, we, we've been doing this as we've been moving through Amos. We started at the beginning and we said, okay, two years before the earthquake, here's Jeroboam the second, right? We're going to look back to Jeroboam the first. We're going to see the stuff he did that set the people on this track. When he said, God as he is isn't sufficient for us. We, we, there's things that we need to be, we need a custom tailored God. We need him to be different in certain ways. Part of this just isn't going to work. And so he started changing up who God was. And, we, and, and, and we, we've gone back to that every single week as we move through Amos and go, look what that caused, look what that caused, look what that caused. If you were to take in your own time and go back to the books of Kings and Chronicles and look at the written history, because this stuff happened over the course of generations. It didn't happen in two weeks. It didn't happen in six months. It didn't happen in 20 years. It happened over the course of generations. And if you go back and you look at that, by the time you get to the point of judgment, these people have been drinking the Kool-Aid for so long, they were taught it by their parents, who were taught it by their grandparents, who were taught it by their great-grandparents. They were taught it by the priest, who were taught it by the priest's dad, who were taught it by the priest's granddad taught it by the priest's great-granddad. It is so ingrained in them. They believe it to be true. They believe it to be true. Even though the actual law of God 
written on the scrolls that they could open and would show the madness of their own deceptive heart when it told them who the God that led them out of Egypt really was. Even though they had them in their possession, it was like they were blind to it. They drank the Kool-Aid. Pardon the cliche. And they'd been drinking it for so long they thought it was the water of life. And so, man, we got this idea of God and here's this thing that's called God and He has a day and that must be great. And the Lord's saying, man, you don't want none of me. Because you think I know who I am and it's not me. And you go, man, I'm glad that's not us. I mean, look at these stupid Hebrews. How in the world could they have gotten there? I mean, listen, look at all the things that Paul says about them. Man, theirs are the promises, theirs are the prophets, theirs are the patriarchs. Right? Through them, even in the flesh, comes the Christ. Man, if you've got all that in your corner, if you've got God looking down on you, you know, coming out of Egypt, sitting there at Sinai and going, I chose you because of my own heart. Like, how do you blow it that bad? Well, to that I would say, pot, meat, kettle. You know, he's speaking here specifically of the day of the Lord and their expectation about it. And if you look across this country today at the expectation for the day of the Lord that is coming out of the pulpits, that is sitting in the pews. I would contend that the expectation from the pulpit and the pew today on average in America is not really that much further off of what the day of the Lord actually is than what their expectation was. We have a nation full of churches expecting the day of the Lord to come both out of nowhere and in the midst of our prosperity. We're just kind of bebopping along and doing business and making deals and hoping that inflation and taxes and interest rates aren't too high and, you know, filling up the tank and going, golly, that's expensive and just, you know, keep on filling it up because even though it's high, we can and and the kids have got t-ball practice, and we got to go to church tomorrow, and you know, camps around the corner, and uh, man, you know, the ball season's about to start. And somehow, in the midst of that, all of a sudden, the day of the Lord is going to come, and and we're just going to, and out we go, and sweet man, because you know that's the sign that the world's just literally about to go physically to hell. And it's going to take seven years. Nobody wants to have to be here for that. Man, we're going to go hang out with Jesus, and, and it's going to be awesome. And then there's going to be some sticky stuff at the end, but, I mean, it's already awesome for us, so there's no real worries. We have a nation full of churches expecting the day of the Lord to come both out of nowhere and in the midst of their prosperity, but Scripture says the day of the Lord and the salvation that accompanies it is in the very midst of the day of judgment. Not apart from it, not before it, not separate, but right smack in the middle. Now, for some of you, this is old hat. For some of you, it may be new. Some people may hear this and never heard anything like it before. 
I would tell you that's okay. Just, you know, read your Bible. It'll, it'll work out. Man, Scripture says that the day of the Lord and the salvation of His people comes in the midst of judgment, specifically that it comes after the ascension of the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, in verse 1 through 5, Paul writes and says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. You know what we call that? That's the rapture. This is Christ's return and the people of God being gathered up in the air to, to meet the Lord concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Warning, Paul says, there's going to be people that try to deceive you on this subject. Go figure. Jeroboam the first. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I taught you these things? Paul says, listen, people are trying to get in your head. Don't you remember that when I was first with you, when I first gave you the gospel, I told you how the thing started, I told you how it was going to end. And here's the way it's going to end. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come for His people. He's going to come on the day of the Lord. He's going to gather His elect to Himself. He's going to gather us to Himself. But that has not come yet. And the reason you know it hasn't is because you haven't seen the Antichrist yet. He hasn't walked into the temple. He hasn't sat down in the Holy Holies. He hasn't proclaimed Himself to be God. And because you haven't seen that yet, then this hasn't happened yet. That's crazy to me. People write books this thick. I used to read them that do all these crazy kind of gymnastics to tell you about how Jesus is actually coming for His people on a day that's separate from the day of the Lord that happened seven years earlier. And Paul's sitting there screaming at the Thessalonians going, No. Don't let them... And he even points it out. They're going to try to lie to you. Don't believe them. You know it hasn't happened yet because you haven't seen the son of perdition himself setting in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. This must happen first, but Scripture doesn't stop there. When are the dead raised? Dead are raised after the tribulation. Scripture tells us that when Christ does come, this is back in 1 Thessalonians, when Christ does come, that those who have preceded us into death will by no means, by no means, be delayed in meeting him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 18, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel. It's Matthew 24 stuff we already read earlier. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Christ comes back to gather His people together after, 
after the Antichrist has shown himself, entered the Holy of Holies, the, the abomination of desolation, declared himself to be God, after all this has happened, when Christ comes with the blast of the archangel and he gathers his elect to him, the fact of the matter is, you who are left alive, it's like small population, you who are left alive will by no means go before the ones that have already died in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. They go first. If you're alive and Christ returns, after the abomination of desolation, when he returns to gather his people, his elect from the four winds of, of heaven with the blast of an archangel to meet him in the air, if you're alive, you're not going first. You're going second. You go second. The dead in Christ rise first. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And you want to know when the, you want to know when the rapture is? Just find the resurrection of the dead. Find the resurrection of the dead, man. They're first. Rapture second. Where's the resurrection of the dead? Is it at the beginning of the tribulation or the end? It's at the end. Revelation chapter 20. Not Revelation chapter 1 or chapter 5. But in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 1 through 5. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There's a resurrection. These people were dead. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the, now check it out, this is the, first resurrection because crazy like I said the problem with Israel when it came with the reason they were going oh yeah man we want the day of the Lord and here's the Lord going you do not want the day of the Lord and the reason you don't is because you don't know the Lord whose day it actually is and because of that when that day comes you're not going to be with him you're going to be opposed to him okay you drank the Kool-Aid man You've believed so much because your parents believed and your grandparents believed. You believe so much that even though the law of Moses is in your midst and you could literally unroll that thing and expose the madness of your own deceptive heart, see the truth that's in front of you, you won't do it. You believe you're right so much so you're rooting for the day of your destruction. Friends, I've read that to people. And had them look at me and go, well, that's just a resurrection. That's not the resurrection. Friends, the Word of God says it's the very first one. There wasn't one that came seven years before. It's this one. That's it. It's the first one. There's a second one coming. That one, everybody burns. 
Now, how is it that a well-educated individual that understands when they pull up to a stoplight that green means go and red means stop can read the Word of God and it says, this is the first resurrection. And they go, no, it's not. How is that? It's because they deceived themselves in the madness of their own heart. Man, they drank the Kool-Aid. Daddy believed it. Good for Daddy. Well, bad for Daddy. You know, but the thing is, is we just, if anything, we ought to just take our Lord's word for it. We just ought to take our Lord's word for it. Man, you want to go back to Matthew 24? So easy. Man, when someone writes a book this thick to explain to you when Jesus is coming for you, immediately the alarm bells ought to start going off. Because Jesus is able to get it done in like a paragraph. And so he tells them all about the abomination of desolate, the same stuff that Paul said, hey, listen, you know that day for our gathering hasn't come yet because you haven't seen the Antichrist rise yet, right? Jesus tells them about it in Matthew 24 and verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so then, once again, they're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to deceive you about the day of the Lord. If anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or he is, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And see, I've told you beforehand so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And I would like to preach on that, but we'll be here till 5 o'clock tonight. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Same topic. Same realities out of Revelation chapter 19. Now, this is Christ himself speaking. Here's the vultures gathering. Come, 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 you kings. Come, come, you slaves. Come, you free. Come, you small and great. Gather yourself together for the great feast of God Almighty. When the sword from his son's mouth will lay you down. And the birds will gorge themselves on your flesh. Oh, they said he was over here. They said he was over there. They said he was in the temple claiming to be God. It was all a lie. Now come down here for wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's your trepidation. Where's your joy? It's right here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. 
The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory to do what? He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus said it was going to be this way. Go figure, his apostles say it will be that way as well. When does this happen? When does he come together his people? When does the trumpet call the angel? After the tribulation of those days. How is it that a man that claims to believe scripture can then turn around and go, yeah, but it actually happened seven years before the tribulation of those days? Drink the Kool-Aid. He's deceived by his own heart rejected the reality of the Lord whose day it will actually be because there was something about it that didn't fit his program and instead replaced him with a custom-made deity that says Yahweh right across the chest. And yet it's the farthest thing from the Lord's whose day it is. Now, if that's the first time you've ever come across that sort of thing, it may have rattled your cage pretty bad. That's okay, man. You don't have to take it from me. Go home. I I encourage you to. I mean it. Go home, man. This is an easy one. Like, I'll win this every time. Go home. Honestly look at Scripture. Find me the rapture that occurs before the tribulation. And if you can do it, then we'll sit down and talk. But otherwise, I would point you to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians, what Jesus says to his people in Matthew, and what he shows to the revelator in Revelation chapter 20. You go, man, that's, that's a rough word, buddy. It's a rough word in Amos. He said, woe to you who want to see the day of the Lord, don't you understand? Because you replaced Him with something you called God, and it really isn't. You don't even know what that day is going to bring. And because you did that, man, when it comes, it's going to be your end. Now look, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying if your theology is skewed on your eschatology, that means you're not saved. That is not what I'm saying. Mine was skewed for years. Years. What I am saying is this, when you're speaking to a nation, which is what Amos is doing, and he says, y'all collectively have got this thing way out of whack. Way out of whack. And man, you, you think the day of the Lord is going to be awesome, and what the day of the Lord is going to be for you is darkness and gloom and destruction and end. Man, those demons are going to be hopping from the top of one mountaintop to the other, ravaging you like fire, coming over your walls and crawling in your bedroom window. And you think you want it. Are you crazy? And you got Peter. And he's going, man, listen, it's all going to burn. But what sort of people ought we to be in righteousness and holiness? We are those who are hastening the day. Okay, well, what's the difference between hastening the day and, man, you people are crazy? The difference is those that actually know their God versus those that think they do. That's the difference because he didn't change. The difference is the water of life and watery Kool-Aid. That's the difference. And so, as 
Amos, as the Lord speaks through Amos to a nation, and he says, listen, collectively, you guys have got a problem. Got a problem. I mean, listen, it, once again, this deals all the heart. And I, I want to reiterate this. If your eschatology screwed up, that doesn't necessarily mean you're lost. I'm here to tell you, there are guys that I know personally, I won't name any names, because they've passed. There are guys that I knew personally that I believe out of the depth of deep calls to deep, man, the spirit in us, right, that, that were wrong on their eschatology. And I, I firmly believe, and as good as whatever that's good for, that, you know, when the Antichrist showed up and the rapture hadn't happened yet, those guys would have gone, huh, well, I was wrong. Guess we better get tough, right? So I, I'm not saying that that necessarily, but I am saying this. When, when the, the church landscape embraces this as as a collective people friends there's something wrong it speaks bad things why why does so many if I, if I can just read some scripture and just like destroy a pre-tribulational argument if you if it takes a book this thick to make an argument about the day of the Lord and what it's going to mean for us. And you can go to three sections of Scripture that literally take up less than one page when you put them all together and blow the thing up in such a way that our third and fourth graders will have no problem understanding it. Like, how do you hold to that? Why? Why do so many people believe this day will come out of nowhere to whisk us away from coming difficulty? And the answer is, is because we like it better that way. We wish God was that way. And you talk about an indictment. You're looking at a holy, righteous God and going, I wish you were different. You know what? In all your holiness and all your righteousness, you really haven't met my standard for what I think goodness ought to be. It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't have to hurt. I shouldn't have to suffer for your name. You suffered and died for me. But, I mean, for you to ask that out of me really wouldn't be very loving, would it? I guess it depends on who your object of love is. Is it you or is it him? So many believe this way this day, just like so many deluded themselves in Amos' day about the nature of the day of the Lord. We delude ourselves about it today because we would like him better if he were that way. And what we don't like is the way he is. We like part of the way he is. We like... God is love. I love God is love. We did a whole camp on it two years ago. I love God is love. Man, if God wasn't love, whoa, <laughs> we, we wouldn't be here talking. But God is also war. He just is. And where do you think all of these pagan religions got all their concepts for the multitude of deities? They couldn't figure out how to grasp the infinite holy nature of a singular God in, 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 in the finite nature of the construction of their paganism, they couldn't get it all in the same ball of wax, so they have to have a God of war and a God of fertility and a God of fire and a God of water and a God of peace. They have to have all these. They have to have a God of joy and merriment. The Romans called him Bacchus. They have to have all of these because they cannot conceptualize that this God is all of that. 
We don't like him being the God of Revelation 13, verse 5 through 10, where it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed, boy, that's the one that nobody likes, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Here's what you're supposed to hear, church. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. We want to custom fit a God. We say, well, we like this about you and we like that about you. We don't like this. How about this? If anyone is to be taken captive, to rapture he goes. And if anyone is to be slain with the sword, to the throne he goes before the slaying. You know, and here is the call for the quiet assurance and deep sleep of the saints. And this is this is the Lord whose day it is. Like it, lump it, this is who he is. He is the God of love, he is the God of hosts. He's the God of love. He's the God of war. This is what he expects from his people. This is what his day will bring. It will bring trepidation and it will bring joy if you trust in the one that is actually him and not some facsimile that we've created that we want him to be. And that's why we said at the very beginning, this is not about legalistic checking boxes, man. Offenses of the heart require reconciliation of the heart. This is not about legalism. It's about trust. When you get a God that says, look, it's going to be like this. It's going to be birds gorged with flesh. It's going to be a sword from my mouth. It's going to be darkness and gloom, a day that's like no other. Demons leaping through your windows. We could have kept reading out of Joel. It just keeps getting crazier. Tongues rotting in people's mouth. Eyeballs falling out of their head. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. The question is, is, okay, Lord, if that's what your day is going to be, do I trust you to do it like that and it be good? Do I trust you? Guys, listen, let me tell you, I'm, I'm making an offer of the gospel to you right here. You should come to this God. Now, you're, listen, you're going to have to, you can forget the prenup. What you're going to do is lay it all down on the line. Put it right there. And you know what you do? And I mean all of it. Your life, you're going to put it down on the line. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to kill you dead. You can either trust him to raise you back up or not. But that's what it's going to be. Let us not be those to who it is said, 
Woe to you who seek the day of the Lord. Instead, let us be those to whom Peter said, since all of these things will be burned, what people in righteousness and holiness should we be but those who are waiting for and hastening the day of his coming? What's the difference? It's not the Lord. The difference is us. This is who he is. This is what his word says. Do you trust him? And if I rattled your cage this morning, made you mad, and you think to yourself, man, I'm going to go home and dig around in this word and prove that preacher wrong, then I have done my job. <laughs> man, go get after it. Prove me wrong. I understand with deep conviction that the word of the Lord will speak for itself. Man, you should come to this God. Man, this same one that gluts the birds is also the one that sacrificed his son that I might live, that you might live. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we say because that you loved us, we do trust you. Lord, we have seen grace upon grace. We have seen the expression of your love. We have seen the faithfulness that you show your people. Lord, we, we have seen the faithfulness that you show yourself. <laughs> and so, Lord, now we pray that, that you would work and that you would draw men and women and boys and girls to you and that you would take those that you have drawn and that you would sanctify them and that you would um, edify them, Lord, in joy even in the midst of trepidation. Lord, because you're faithful, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.